Hey, Podifax listeners, this is just another quick announcement right above the top of the episode before we launch into it to remind you that the new iTunes charts are out. And if you are enjoying this show, one of the best things you can do for us to help this show grow and to get visible to more people and get to do more and more fun things that we're doing with this podcast, if you could go on there and leave a review for us, it would make a world of difference. I know it doesn't seem like a lot, but it makes a monumental difference. And it can be the difference between us being on that top 200 or being somewhere in obscurity. And we would really, really appreciate it. So if you have the time and if you have the inclination, please hop on over there and check it out. And thank you and enjoy the rest of the episode. Hello and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 53, Pope Symmachus. Is this a name you recognize? Yes, but this was one another one of those let's get up at 450 days and <laughs> nothing's, nothing's rolling around there real good. We've mentioned his name a lot in this, so I wouldn't expect you to know exactly why you know his name, just that you know his name is pretty good, because he's one of those papacies that definitely, definitely stands out. So let's figure out why, because it's a long way to go. So, Symbicus was the son of Fortunatus, and he was born in Sardinia, maybe in Symaxis. At this time, the island of Sardinia was part of the Vandal Kingdom, the same one that had been established in Africa, so he's not part of the Italian kingdom or the Roman Empire carrying on in the East. In his book, The Popes and the Papacy of the Middle Ages, historian Geoffrey Richards points out that this makes Symmachus really unique in terms of how much of an outsider he is to take on the papacy. He's more outsider than any of the other popes. We've had Ostrogothics, we've had the empire popes, but he is outside of all of that. He's part of the Vandal Kingdom. So he's quite outside our normal scope. And that's not all that made him an outsider, because by all accounts, Symmachus was born a pagan. Oh. Yeah, we haven't seen that in a long time, not since like the very early, early days of Christianity. So obviously, on this fact alone, this shouldn't discount him as a religious leader or anything. Because we know that he definitely did convert to Christianity and was baptized in Rome and entered the church to be an archdeacon under Anastasius II. But as far as that whole outsider thing goes, it's just another tick in the column. So he's outside of the empire and outside of the Italian kingdom in terms of his, you know, where he was born and his ethnicity, quote unquote. And he was born a pagan. So he's fairly outside of the norm, and we might want to consider this if this plays a factor in how things go down for him. So, Symmachus was elected to be the next pope on the 22nd of November in 498 in the Lateran Basilica. He was a choice that was approved by the majority of the clergy, as well as most of the civil senate, and he was consecrated on the spot of his election. The Liber Pontificalis tells us why he was so well approved by saying, quote, he loved the clergy and the poor, he was a good man and sagacious, kindly, and courteous. Seems like a good candidate for Pope. A good guy. Yeah. He was also seen as a candidate who would continue to resist the Henoticon 
and not commune with heretics or pursue that conciliatory approach to the Acacian Schism that got Anastasius II in so much trouble. However, this was a decision that not everybody was happy about. There's still that faction within the church that thought that reconciliation with Constantinople was priority number one. And it would be this faction, the ones that are not happy about having a Henoticon resisting pope, that when the results of the election were made clear and Symmachus was made pope, they go to the Basilica Santa Maria Maggiore on the same day and elect another pope. What? Antipopes. Yep. We're back to antipopes. This other pope is Laurentius, who had been the archpriest of St. Praxedes. So, it's official antipapacy time. And to make matters worse, this new faction who has just elected Laurentius to be an antipope very quickly had the support of Emperor Anastasius, as well as that meddling pro-Byzantine senator that we mentioned last week, Senator Festus. Why do these guys get a say in anything? Well, because they're powerful men, and, according to Alban Butler, Festus had bribed several clerics to take part in this second election because he thought that Laurentius would be easy to influence and get him to sign on to the Henoticon. So they're they're really focused on this. The Henoticon. Yeah. And that is sourced from Theodorus Lecter in his book, chapter 193. They do all sound like villain names. Senator Festus, Emperor Anastasius. Well, not Anastasius so much, but Laurentius. Yeah. Laurentius and Festus. And there's also going to be another senator involved in this called Probinus. So, yeah, they definitely have those those kind of villain names. They're going to act like villains. Let's just, yeah. It is really important to point out that at this point, and after all of the hubbub that happened with Anastasius too, the group that wanted conciliation with the Byzantines and wanted the Henoticon is a smaller group, like definitively a smaller group. So Symmachus, our Pope, is still the candidate with the most clerical support by a long shot. And the Church is not ignorant to what happened during the last antipope schism. Our last two antipopes have come with a fair amount of violence. 137 people were massacred for supporting antipope Ursinus over Damasus, and violent riots had broken out in the streets over antipope Eulalius, and both of those men had to be forcibly expelled from the city. So they're not sure, even though they're in this conflict and we now have two popes, they're not sure they want to go this far over it or let the divide spill out into the streets of Rome. Yet. So for whatever reason, both the Simican and the Laurentian parties agree that they would have the king of Italy, King Theoderic, who had taken over after defeating and murdering Odoacer. Just stabbed him at dinner. Stabbed him at dinner. This is what you did to my friends, and there's no bones in this fellow. That guy? They're gonna have him arbitrate the schism and come to a determination on who the legitimate pope should be. And this is ridiculously ironic, because this is exactly the kind of interference that Gelasius was fighting against with that duo sunt letter. And... Theoderic is a heretic because he's an Arian Christian. So they are now having an Arian Christian heretic decide who is going to be the next pope. He's not in charge. He's so not in charge of this, but the only logic I could 
think of here is that by not being an Orthodox Christian in this setting, maybe it made him a relatively neutral-ish party if they were looking for some kind of judgment that wouldn't be swayed to one side or the other. Because we know that the Senate has members that are very pro-Orthodox and some that, like Festus, who are very pro-Hanoticon. We know that the emperor is no longer in charge of Rome. So where are they going to turn? So they turn to Theoderic. And Theoderic agrees that he's going to arbitrate this decision and orders an investigation to take place with the declaration that the pope who was elected first and with the most supporters should be declared the legitimate pope. This is bad. That's what... Then Damacus is like, you know what? What if I murder all those people? Exactly. And I mean... It's a dumb ruling, too, because what if the Pope who was elected first is not the one who has the most supporters? Because we are going to see that happen in the future. In this case, it doesn't end up mattering because Symmachus was both first elected and the greater supported candidate. But still, it's a weird set of, of rules to put on that. And they already have disregarded the law that had gone into place during Boniface's papacy that said, in the case of a double election, both candidates should be discarded and a new election should be held. So, yeah, they're just leaving this up to Theoderic, who looks at the investigation and says, okay, Symmachus was first, Symmachus has the most supporters. So he goes, yeah, okay, I'm going to declare it in favor of him. Symmachus is the legitimately elected pope, plain and simple. Unless we want to believe the Laurentian fragment, which suggests that, quote, Symmachus won his case by spending a lot of money. So the Laurentian fragment is going to come up a lot in this episode, so we'll briefly explain now. It's a portion of a document that was written in the 6th century that looks like it was probably another series of papal biographies, kind of like the Liber Pontificalis and the Liberian Catalog. But only one manuscript survives of this particular version. It was found in Verona. It is still kept in Verona. And it's far from complete. The only section that we have that remains of this one document is called the Laurentian Fragment because the part that survives is this account of Symmachus's papacy and the Laurentian Schism, but telling a totally different story to the Liber Pontificalis version in that the Laurentian Fragment is heavily skewed in Laurentius's favor. So we have the Liber Pontificalis version, which is very neutral and nice and very Symmachus-oriented, and then we have the Laurentian fragment that says everything bad about Symmachus and everything good about Laurentius. So this Laurentian fragment says that Symmachus won because of bribery, but the Liber Pontificalis says, quote, They received this righteous judgment thus through justice and perception of the truth. Symmachus was selected and made bishop. So either he bribed a lot of people or, you know, righteous truth and justice. Two very different accounts. Whether or not there were actually bribes is hard to say. Only one other source mentions any bribes, and this is Magnus Felix Enodius of Milan, who mentions that 400 soldi in bribes were distributed. But he's a supporter of Symmachus, so it's kind of unclear if he's talking about the Pope issuing bribes or whether this is a reference back to Senator Festus giving out bribes. We're not quite sure. So, either way, we know that whether there were bribes on Festus' side, bribes on Symmachus' side, or neither, or both, Symmachus has been declared the legitimate pope by Theoderic. 
and we're going to have the Liber Pontificalis and the Laurentian Fragment also differ on what happens next. So after the judgment of Theoderic is issued, and Symmachus is recognized as the rightful pope, Symmachus immediately calls for a synod to be held in Rome right now to kick things off officially. Look, I'm the official pope. Let's just, let's just get this all sorted out and official. So the synod is convened on March 1st of 499 at St. Peter's, attended by 72 bishops, 63 priests, and the whole of the Roman clergy, including Laurentius, which is good. The Liber Pontificalis tells us, at that time, Pope Symmachus assembled a synod and appointed Laurentius bishop of the town of Nuceria out of compassion. So he's like, okay, you were elected pope, you're an anti-pope, you are no longer pope, I'm going to make you a bishop of this city. You go do that, we won't have any more conflict. The Laurentian fragment tells us, Laurentius was severely threatened and cajoled and forcibly dispatched to govern the Church of Nuceria, a city in Campania. Forcibly. Forcibly. So either he was, like, given the position out of compassion, or he was given the position, like, you get out of here and you must go now and we will insult and cajole you forever. I mean, he's butthurt, so... So, so butthurt. So this, you can assume that the truth is somewhere in the middle of that. You know, he he probably was not happy about being given a position. Symmachus was probably trying to be nice. But we do know for sure that Laurentius is made the Bishop of Nuceria, which is now on Serra Umbra in the Campania region. So apparently Campania is the place to retire antipopes right now because that's what happened to our last one. Now, aside from dealing with this whole anti-pope situation, the Synod also made new regulations to ensure that future papal elections wouldn't resort to secular interference to make a decision, so that only the Roman clergy had the right to establish who would be pope. Not the emperor, not the king, not the senators, and not the laity. They are all excluded in this document from having a voice in the process. Which is interesting, because we always conceive of just the church participating in the papal elections. But as we've seen in this election, and a couple others before, the senate and the civil prefects play a role in the outcomes. Besides making papal elections a church-only process, there was also a degree that forbade clerics from jockeying for a papal successor while a current pope was still alive, on pain of deposition and excommunication. So... Any cleric who consulted on the prospect of future papacies, or, like, met to plan for future successors, or tried to win votes for a specific candidate, would just be removed from the church. So if you are, like, sitting there and you're going, ooh, after this guy dies, I'd like that guy to be pope, and you start talking about it, you can be excommunicated and removed from your position. So the clergy who is at this council, they all come to a consensus on the decrees that were made, and for the time being, the papacy was peaceful. And when Theoderic visited Rome the following year, he was received very warmly by the Pope who thanked him for his wise and just decision and showed him a consolidating papacy and a content Roman church. Everything's looking real good. But as soon as Theoderic left Rome, things kicked up again. Like, pretty much immediately after they heard the last horse hooves fade in the distance, things got crazy. 
The supporters of Laurentius were still not okay with Theoderic's decision, and they weren't done resisting. And chief among them, of course, is Senator Festus. And then his his other friend, supporting Senator Probinus, comes into the picture. And Probinus writes to King Theoderic with their, quote, utmostly genuine concerns that Symmachus was committing, quote, various crimes. <laughs> you know, something. Something. But unlike the last few times where we've had the Pope accused with no further information, we're actually able to suss out what went on here. Because the first accusation made against Symmachus, are you ready for this? Do you want to guess? I don't know. It's probably like witchcraft or sacrificing children or banging somebody. Oh, one out of three. But they were accusing him of celebrating Easter on the wrong day. Wow, that's back? <laughs> yeah, kind of, sort of. They were back to Easter. 53 episodes in. <laughs> it makes me tired. I know. According to the accusation, Symmachus had celebrated Easter based on the calculations of the old Roman calendar on March 25th of 501, when they argued that on the new calendar, it should have been April 22nd. So it's not a Sunday, Sunday, Sunday thing. It isn't, you just calculated it wrong, and, and this is a crime. So Theoderic receives the letter of the concerns of the senators, and he calls Symmachus to his current capital, Ariminium, which is modern-day Rimini, to respond to these charges. And Symmachus goes, okay, I can do that. He goes quite willingly, because at this time, the only charge he's aware of was this incorrect Easter charge, which he felt that he could handily defend. More than likely, it wasn't true in the first place. So he's like, all right, I can go and deal with this. But when he gets to the city, he was faced with a whole lot more than just a fuddled Easter date. He was also accused of a series of other offenses, particularly that he was misusing church property and embezzlement of funds, and that he was having an affair with, quote, a young lovely lover called Condrita, with whom he has been in a long-standing relationship for years. A young lovely. A young lovely lover called Condrita. Now, the only source I could actually find that credits her with a name was a Hungarian site that I had to Google Translate into English and suss out the correct meanings. So, Kondrita could be a Hungarianized version of a Latin name, but we're going to go with it because that's the name that came up. But this event is also mentioned in the Laurentian fragment, where it says that when he arrived in Ariminium, he was walking on the beach for some reason, and he happened to see this woman he was accused of having an affair with. So he just runs into her and he's like, what are you doing here? And puts two to two together. So either way, he realized he was being accused of a lot more than he thought, like sins with actual serious consequences. And maybe the odds are stacked against him and he'd been set up. So he panics. And he leaves immediately. He, like, legs it in the middle of the night with only one attendant to accompany him. But as you can imagine, when it was found out that he'd taken off in the middle of the night, Theoderic and his accusers took this to be an admission of guilt. It never looks good to duck out, even if it's the right choice for your safety. You look so, so guilty. So the Laurentian supporters leapt on the opportunity, and they summoned Laurentius back to Rome 
where they get together and forcibly occupy the Lateran Palace so that when Symmachus returns to the city, he's forced to take refuge in the Church of St. Peter outside the walls. However, remember that Symmachus still had the majority backing of the Roman clergy. So just because Laurentius and his faction had stormed in and taken over the residence of the Pope didn't mean that the church had any intention of accepting the change as legitimate. And so most of the clergy refused to enter communion with Laurentius and, and basically went on Pope strike. So because Symmachus is being suppressed by the Laurentian faction and Laurentius couldn't win over the clergy, we run into the same sort of situation we saw with Boniface and anti-Pope Eulalius, that Easter is coming up and there wasn't a clear solution to have an official figure hold the Easter Mass for 502, which of course was a particular concern of Senators Festus and Probinus because they just accused the Pope of celebrating the wrong day. So they probably thought at the moment that this would be a perfect opportunity to get the king to support their guy, Laurentius. But King Theoderic decided that instead, while all this conflict is going on, he's going to appoint the Bishop of Altinum, which is in northern Italy by Venice, his name is Peter, to act in the same way that the Bishop of Spoleto had as the apostolic visitor to conduct the Easter services and basically act as the temporary pontifical administration while this mess was sorted out in a synod that they started arranging for the beginning of summer. So Peter arrives in Rome to take over the duties, and he immediately took the side of the anti-pope, which is not terribly surprising. You know, it benefited him to have the apostolic see empty with an anti-pope who wasn't holding the support of the clergy, because this means that he gets to continue occupying the office for the time being. It's a good move for him. Yes. But Symmachus is not going to stand idly by and continue to push for and organize a second synod to bring order to the chaos. So this synod was held in the Basilica Santa Maria Maggiore in Trastevere, and for legitimacy, he had it presided over by the major metropolitans of Italy, including Marcellanus of Aquileia, Peter II of Ravenna, and the unfortunately named for this moment Laurentius of Milan. Laurentius, not that Laurentius. <sighs> now, Peter of Altinum, the apostolic visitor, also attended, hastily sent by his senatorial cronies, Festus and Probinus. And this makes things immediately complicated because Symmachus takes major issue with his presence and argued that by being there, Peter was implicating that the apostolic see was vacant. But the see would only actually be vacant if Symmachus had been found guilty of the charges and had been deposed. So if he was going to be at this synod, it implied that the outcome had already been determined before actually hearing the case. So he's saying if this is going to be a fair and proper synod, Peter's got to go. And the majority of the bishops agree with Symmachus and they want Peter out so they could go ahead and do this thing right. However, to expel Peter without the permission of King Theoderic was not going to be a good idea. It's going to open a door to a whole new set of dangerous consequences. And Theoderic is definitely not giving permission for Peter to withdraw, so the council's left in deadlock. Symmachus and his supporters are refusing to continue in Peter's presence, and Peter's refusing to leave. And of course, he has the backing of the senators and any Laurentian supporters. So nothing's happening. 
other than people getting angrier and angrier and the streets are getting more hostile. Mm, they're going to riot. Riots break out. And many of the bishops flee for the city for fear of violence. And the rest, who actually are staying, are desperately petitioning Theoderic to grant permission to hold a synod in Ravenna, outside of Rome, where they wouldn't be in, like, clear and present danger. But Theoderic refuses. He's like, nah, this is a Roman problem. It needs to have a Roman solution. So he says, no, instead of letting you move somewhere safer to make this decision, you need to reconvene for another session by September 1st. We're not really sure why he was so entirely against this. Like, it seems like he was either totally exasperated with the whole situation and just wanted them to get on with it, or because he was away in his capital, he's removed from understanding how dangerous things are getting. And in his letter, refusing the bishop's request, he assures them that the synod would be perfectly fine and safe and sends them two Majores Domus Nostre, which are two goth soldiers called Guidilla and Bedulfus, to protect the council. If he thought that two heavily armored or heavily made-up goth men was going to be enough to keep the whole thing safe, he might not have understood how serious this was at this time. And the council is a total mess. You know, it does reconvene, as Theoderic dictated on September 1st, this time in the Caesarian Basilica, which today is called Santa Croce in Jerusalem, which is still in Rome, that's just the name of the church, things got heated very quickly. The Laurentian supporters demanded the presentation of a document that declared that Theoderic had already determined Symmachus's guilt when he fled away from Ariminium, so the council should just go ahead and declare him guilty and pass sentence right away. The Simican supporters obviously reject this document and refuse to pass a judgment on Symmachus, arguing that there was no precedent for the Pope to be subject to a judgment of other bishops. Obviously, this isn't true. We've seen them be judged by other bishops like Damasus and the Sixtus III, but they are trying to blockade this council until they have a proper and safe synod somewhere else. So they push for the Laurentian clergy to submit to Symmachus, as he was the legitimately declared pope, and wrote to Theoderic again, requesting that he let the bishops go back to their own diocese. Basically, like, look, this is a non-issue. There's no evidence of these charges. Symmachus is still the legitimate pope. Let's just be done with this already. And then, as Symmachus and his supporters make their way to the synod to appear, they were attacked by a mob out on the street. Full-on, total-scale violence. Many of Symmachus's supporters were severely injured, and at least two priests were killed. This is Gordianus and Dignissimus. The priest Gordianus, by the way, was the father of a future pope, Aegyptus. And Aegyptus was also here in the fray, and also was almost killed. Like, he was a fraction of a moment away from being stoned to death. So this is a very... Very serious and violent riot. People are being murdered in the street for being with Symmachus. That's a bit excessive. Throwing rocks? Picking up and throwing rocks. That's like a... Oh yeah, like stoned to death. That's a level of uh, commitment there. Fortunately, Symmachus escaped unharmed, but he was forced to retreat back inside of St. Peter's outside the walls and barricaded himself inside to avoid literally being murdered. So... This obviously had a very strong impact on him because the Synod urged him to try again, like to come to the council 
They come to his door and they try to bring him out three times and he refuses. They've got rocks out there. He's like, I am going to be murdered. (laughs) It's not a good time for him. It's completely unsafe for anybody at this point. And no cleric wanted to be on the street at night. You know, for the sake of accuracy, one source called The Life of Symmachus suggests that this street fighting wasn't a direct attack on Symmachus, but rather was like street fighting already happening between supporters of like the pro-Byzantine senators and then like the anti-Byzantine senators. But what's the likelihood of that? Like the Pope is attempting to appear at a major council on a major schism with a large group against him, and they just happen to wander into some street violence? I don't think so. That's some sort of weird divine intervention thing. Yeah, no. No, it's just, that's just not a thing that's gonna happen. He doesn't just accidentally walk into this conflict. So, either way, the Pope is not coming out, and the Synod is starting to freak out because all of their lives are in danger. So they keep writing to Theoderic to release them from this council. And and Theoderic continues to say no, and now he's just flat out ordering them to come to a conclusion if it's the last thing that they do. Like, yeah, okay, I don't care that you're going to be murdered. Solve the problem, do the thing, too bad, then maybe you won't be murdered. Like, he's not at all okay. Like, he's not helping them out one fair bit. So the bishops are caught in between a rock and a hard place here. So they decide if they are forced to see this council through to a conclusion, they're going to do that. They're going to ignore his bit about needing it to be in Rome. And fair enough, they do not want to get murdered. And they probably realize that Theoderic would be less mad if they moved and just be pleased if the whole damn thing was over. So, like, ask forgiveness later rather than permission type situation. So they reconvene on October 23rd of 502 at a place called Palma, which is in Campania, so outside of Rome. And this is why it's often referred to as the Palmary Synod. When this synod met, they looked at the chaos of the last two meetings, and they quickly and vehemently passed a resolution that, look, the Pope is the apostolic successor of Peter. This is the law. This is declared in the papacy of Pope Leo I. And if this is so, then the bishops cannot pass judgment on him. He could not be found guilty by the clergy, full stop. So they demanded on this declaration, like, look, this is it. This is this is the decision that we've come to. Apostolic successors cannot be judged by bishops. Bar none, it is over. So they demand that all church property was to be transferred to Symmachus. The clergy who supported Laurentius were now to reconcile and take communion with Symmachus now and that any clergy who can carried on in mass in Rome without the Pope's assent, like basically anybody who was trying to take it with Laurentius or Peter of Altinum or any of the supporters, would be excommunicated. This is done. We are over it. And this declaration was signed by 76 bishops, which is the large majority of the clergy, with Laurentius of Milan and Peter II of Ravenna leading the way as the two major Italian metropolitans. Laurentius bishop, not Laurentius antipope. So, this is it. This is the final word of the church, and now the bishops could go back to their bishoprics, safety, and everything else. Look, it's over. We've done it. We've done it, Theoderic. Look, we've done it. It's been done. It's been done. But nothing about this situation could be simple, right? Never. No. It's already so complicated, and I am so tired, and all of it is like, just 
nonsense. So what do you think happens at this point when they've come to this very clear conclusion? He dies. No, I don't know. Theoderic, the one who had forced them to continue with the Synod in the first place, now refuses to support the final outcome. Someone fire him. Yeah, he's the worst. So he refuses to acknowledge their declaration by just ignoring it and allows Laurentius to remain in Rome. And so this leads to four years of intense violence in Rome. Like, we're talking openly fighting in the streets. They, like, go to war. It's like Pokemon Go when you have to fight over gyms. But over churches, they are literally coming and having these little wars and killing people, trying to win churches for their dude. Your Pokemon Go app is more intense than mine. I've never played Pokemon Go, but I know that people fight over, like, locations and stuff for their team and whatever. There's raids. I don't know. This one comes with uh, with blood and gore. So the, you know, and of course, the Laurentian supporters have the support of Senator Festus, so they end up in control of the Lateran Basilica again. We'll deal with more details of what he did in this time on Laurentius's episode on Patreon. And Symmachus keeps St. Peter's Basilica. There is, like, massive bloodshed, consistently erupting conflicts, like, a brutal period of utter chaos for the church on an unprecedented level. Like, if we thought Damasus's massacre of Ursinian supporters was bad... That was just a couple of days. This is four years where this goes on and on and on. So I'm going to give you the Liber Pontificalis account. Then Festus the Patrician began to slaughter in the city the clergy who were communicating with the Blessed Symmachus, and they killed with the sword publicly those who were found in the city. Also they expelled consecrated women and virgins from their dwellings, and they stripped women of their clothing and wounded them with blows and stripes, and daily they wage war against the church in the midst of the city. Daily. That's so much war. For four years. <laughs> daily. That's so many days. So it won't be until 506 that three non-Romans, the deacon Enodius of Milan, and Dioscorus, an exiled deacon of Alexandria, and Bishop Avitus of Vienne, on behalf of all of the Gallic bishops, finally were able to convince King Theoderic to do something. So he just let this go on for four years until these three men finally, finally are able to convince him. And we're going to talk about how they were able to convince him in the bonus episode on Patreon. So he finally orders Laurentius and his supporters, by the rule of law, to surrender their control over the churches that they held, to Symmachus, because, yeah, I guess he's the rightful pope after all. And at this time, because it's an order from the king, Senator Festus wasn't going to be able to stand against it. It is actually finally over. And Symmachus commemorated the end of the mess with a church monument inscribed with the phrase, The biting of the wolves has seized. So you can imagine how incredibly, incredibly awful this was. Yeah, the biting of the wolves have ceased. That's intense. Very intense. Like, people were being murdered this whole time for four years, and then Theoderic goes, oh, yeah, I guess I made that decision, like, a long time ago. Yeah, I'm gonna just stick with that one. So. So things are finally settled, and Symmachus can actually get to poping for once, after already being pope for, like, six years. 
And he was going to be Pope for another eight years, and he puts his papacy to some good productive use. This is, you know, despite the fact that Emperor Anastasius in the East continued to call him the illegally ordained Pope and occasionally passive-aggressively accused him of being a friend of Manny. Oh, but he doesn't have any glitter on him. No. Symmachus very openly advised priests across the empire not to commune with heretics and expelled friends of Manny regularly and held several public burnings of Manichaean books. Oh, I thought you were going to say, like, Manichaean people. I'm like, whoa, whoa, let's slow down and back up a few steps. I think he's done with the whole murder bit, because he's over it. Yeah, I would be too after four years. So he's definitely not a friend of Manny. And by the way, when he gets word of the Emperor's jabs, like calling him a Manichaean and calling him the illegally ordained Pope, he, like, writes a letter in 512 that smoothly denies all of this, along with a safe but effective reminder of all the emperors who had persecuted Christians who now had really, really blemished reputations while the church just carried on. So he sends him a glitter bomb. Yeah, yeah, it's just the right amount of sass. It's perfect. He also welcomed any Orthodox bishops into Rome that had been persecuted and expelled from the East for refusing to accept the Hanoticon. So you know he was driving Anastasius crazy with all this super passive-aggressive awesome. Now we can actually look at what he did with the rest of his papacy. In 513, Symmachus was visited by Caesarius, the bishop of Arles, while he was either exiled or trying to reach King Theoderic to sort out some of the political trouble he found himself in. He was looking for the Pope to once again bolster the authority of the Bishopric of Arles, which we've seen ebb and flow since Zosimus had his Vegas friendship wedding. Symmachus saw this as the perfect opportunity to make a statement that the primacy of the papacy was far from over, despite, you know, the setbacks of his early papacy, and willingly gave Caesarius his favor, opting to restore some rights to Arles to make it a primate of Gaul, which also gave him some authority over Spain, and even gave him a pallium. We talked about the pallium in Pope Mark's episode, episode 36. But briefly again, the pallium is an extremely exclusive vestment that is a symbol of the highest authority in the church, which is why it's mostly only for the Pope. So it's a huge mark of distinction, and so far, we only have record of the Bishop of Ostia, who consecrates new popes, having this honor. So, we can assume that it's expanded slightly in the time between then and now, but we do know for sure that Caesarius was the first bishop to receive the honor outside of Italy. So, by giving this pallium to the Bishop of Arles, Symmachus is exercising his papal primacy in a very public way and winning some powerful loyalty to kind of smooth everything over. He also saw an intense necessity that the clergy expand to strengthen the Orthodox cause and to assist with establishing a better sense of unity, particularly in Rome, which has not been unified for four years. So, during mostly the active part of his papacy, Symmachus conducted holy orders to ordain 117 bishops, 92 priests, and 16 deacons into the church. These are big numbers, far beyond what we've seen in a while. And then he uses those new clerics for very practical purposes, because it's clear that Symmachus was very much a people-oriented pope. No more murder. No more murder. He, he is all about making this actually work for the people. So, now that he has a larger clerical body to work with, he establishes many new church, including St. Andrew's, which is near St. Peter's, 
a new basilica for St. Agnes outside the walls. He rebuilt the churches of San Pancrazio and San Martino al Monte and the Basilica of St. Sylvester. And he also restored and expanded the catacombs of the Jordani. And then he adds a bunch of decorations to St. Peter's, adding marble flooring and new porphyry columns and a larger courtyard, additional residential space, and a well that existed where the Bernini Fountain is today. So he's the first one who put the well there. What's Is the Bernini Fountain pretty? The Bernini Fountain is very pretty. You've probably seen this one before because it's right in the center of, of St. Peter's, but it is he put the well there to make that fountain do that thing. Okay, I've probably seen that. If I put it in a picture where you can see the rest of St. Peter's... Mm-hmm. It will make sense, yes. But close up, it just looks like two turtles. Nope, two mushrooms hanging out. Two two mushrooms. Yeah, but I like it. It's It's pretty. So that's the Bernini Fountain. He's he's the one who put that that well there. But more than the churches, Symmachus also founded three hospices, asylums for the poor, places of refuge for fleeing refugees, and hostels for incoming travelers. Three hospices? How many dead people are happening? How much end of life is there in Rome right now that you need three? This is 6th century Rome. A lot. So much. Like, death. And disease, and poverty, and all the things that go along with ancient cities, but a lot. Ah, so it's like when I go, like, you hit a certain point when you're driving out of the suburbs here, and everything is a, um, there's just a kidney dialysis place every, like, three miles. And you're oh my like, gosh. that's a problem. That is a big problem. Weird. He also sent vast amounts of money and aid supplies to Africa and his native home of Sardinia, for the Christians who had been exiled by the Vandal Kingdom, or those who had been impacted by invasion, or, you know, to ransom off captives. He even sent them saints' relics, the saints of Nazarius and Romanus, to symbolically and spiritually encourage them in their religious tribulation. There's a lot of charity going on. I mean, if this is all we had on him, it would still be pretty good. There's also a handful of sources that credit Symmachus as being the first pope to extend the use of the Gloria in Mass on a regular basis. The original Gloria was introduced by Pope Telesphorus, episode 10, and was reserved specifically for Christmas, but in the modern day, it's used in every Sunday's Mass. So Symmachus at least made it more regular than once a year, although we don't know if he made it weekly or not, but he gets credited for being that guy. So... He died on July 19th of 514 of natural causes and was buried in the portico of Old St. Peter's Basilica, but unfortunately his tomb was destroyed when the new one was constructed in the 16th century. So we do not have his tomb, but we have the well that made the Bernini Fountain. So it's something. Are you ready to rate this man? Yeah, let's go. There's a lot to consider here. Papatum. Infallium. Honestly, this category for this pope is probably the hardest we've ever had to deal with. This is a pope who was supported by the actual clerical majority, but because of his secular political influence and the obstinacy of the king, his rival is considered one of the most successful anti-popes in history. But he ultimately won out, and the legacy of a council deciding that bishops had no grounds to judge the pope 
because he was the successor of Peter, is huge and will have an ongoing legacy. One source says, The conflict severely harmed the reputation of the Christian faith as the religion of brotherly love. I don't know if that's actually matters so much because we've already seen church violence, but it's something to consider. And after all of the struggle, he still completed lots of works of charity, assisting members in the church who were in need, didn't just focus entirely on reestablishing the authority of the papacy after it had been shaken, but he's doing a lot of good pastoral work. So it's good, it's bad, not a lot of it's his fault. The parts he does are really good. We also need to consider the Simican forgeries. He has somewhat of a unique piece of legacy where there are a series of documents that were written during this ongoing struggle with him that were forged to seem like they were early documents to set precedents to justify the decision that the Synod had come to. So that whole no one can pass judgment on the Pope. They were trying to write documents that looked significantly older from older councils so that they could say, oh, look, this conclusion we've come to as our final decision, this is what the church said before, even though it wasn't. The forgeries try to pass themselves off as the Acts of the Synod of Sinuessa under Pope Marcellinus, the Gesta from the Papacy of Liberius, the Constitutum from the Papacy of Sylvester, and the Acts that cleared Sixtus III on those accusations of something. We have to consider them because for a long period of time, they were considered legitimate and widely disseminated for centuries before their origins were determined, so there's a legacy there, too. So there's a lot to consider. I think I'm just gonna go, like, in the middle there. I'm like a six. Six? Okay. I am going to, you know, I'm gonna give him a couple points for pastoral work. I'm gonna give him some points for winning out against the most successful anti-papacy in history because all he was doing the right things all the way along for this. And he was fighting for apostolic succession. He was fighting for primacy of the Pope. Even when it wasn't working, he never relented once on that as an issue. And that whole no one can pass judgment on the Pope is worth significant points just on its own. So I'm going to give him an eight. And that'll give him a 14 in this category. Fructus prohibitum. He was accused, truthfully or not, of bribing to become Pope, mishandling church funds, celebrating Easter on the wrong day, and maybe having a girlfriend called Kondrita. Might be worth a point or two. He can have a point. A point. But then do you want to give him anything for the violence? Because his side was participating in the violence, too. He mostly, like, hid in his home. Well, yeah, because he was almost murdered, like, by being stoned to death, wouldn't you? I'm gonna give him a three total. I'm gonna give him a four, because the violence happened for four years. Yeah, four years, but he didn't stone people. He hid in his home. He And it seems like the Laurentians were the most aggressive ones, but I'm still- I gotta give him some points for that violence, because it was not all one-sided. So a seven in Fructus Prohibitum seems about right. Seculari impactum. The violence of the anti-papacy goes on for four years. We just said that, but four years. This is an impact that affects everybody, secular or religious. It's a bad one. It's real bad. And any way you look at it, a papacy where the secular authority had all the power over the church is, is a bad thing. The king determined who was the legitimate pope. 
The emperor supported the anti-pope. The king refused to end synods or move synods for the safety of the bishops, and the king refused to recognize the ruling of the synods. So secular impact is bad. Real bad. I'm giving him a zero. Yeah, it's pretty bad. There's um there's a dog here barking at a I, I heard assume cicadas. <laughs> They're in a fight. They're in a Pope anti Pope fight. The cicadas are like, bang me and the dog's like, No <laughs> That's what is happening outside. Yep, exactly. It's going to go on for four years. <laughs> but yeah, let's uh, give him a, a big old goose egg for being in this fight. All right, so he gets a zero for secular impact of nothing good. Oh, I don't know. Maybe we can give him a one because he, he set up all those hostages and hostels. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll give him a one because I mean, maybe we'll give him one each. Give him a two. Yeah, that's fair. He did some nice things. He's oh, trying. Oh, my dog. <laughs> Dogs everywhere. Fossium Sanctus. We have a lot of images to look at here because he's a very well-known pope, so... <laughs> There's a new dog. It's a new dog and a Jafif. You're welcome. I hate it. What do you think of his face? I have questions. You have questions? Yes. Why is his third eye glowing? Oh, right up in the middle of his forehead. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that just looks like a mistake. This is a man to me who just looks tired of all of the violence. Someone comes up to him and is like, 12 more clerics died. And he's like, <sighs> yeah, exactly. He's not, he just wants to be done with this. And he's like, I did all the right things. Why is this happening? So I don't know. There's nothing particularly special about it. It just, it's a man who looks tired. <laughs> he may be napping. He, he's gonna get a four. Alright, that's a, that's a good number. Like, he's not, he's not ugly, he's not stupendous, he's not interesting, he's just gonna nap. Yeah, he needs that a nap. A four. Okay, so he gets an eight, which when worked out, gives him a two. He gets a two. Alright, so now, here's, here's the one that we always look at from the bad artist. They're just all starting to look the same. Yeah, no. They're after 50, they're all that's the same person. So, I'm going to send you a more contemporary-ish image of him. This is of the Basilica of St. Agnes, and I'm going to send you the actual he's he's in the dome. So, I'm going to send you the dome and he is on the left and then I'll send you a close up. He is not the man holding the house. <laughs> he is not the man in the middle. He is the man holding the book on the side. Here is a close-up of that. Oh, and it's a Jafif. There you go. Why do you hate me today? I don't know why they're Jafifs, but it happened. It's still small, but he, you can see he's holding a Bible. He's kind of got that sort of thousand-mile stare going on. Yeah, when I zoomed in, it looks really silly. He's got some fabulous high heels on. Yeah, yeah, it's, they're, they're like those sandly high heels that we really, really hated on Alex, Pope Alexander. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's cool that we're getting to contemporary-ish things. We're not that far away from actually a Pope where an image was constructed of him in his own time. So that's pretty exciting. But yeah, 
That's what he looks like. Tempus Pontificus. November 22nd, 498 to July 19th of 514. 16 years? Score of four. He got to have eight good years out of that. So, you know, not terrible. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Do, 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 do. Yes, he is a feast. He, well, he, he is, is a feast, feast yum, <laughs> delicious. Yes, he is a saint. His feast day is July 19th, just passed not too long ago. He is not a patron saint, although I feel like he should be. I really feel like he should be. So, what are you thinking? Okay. Mm, I don't have any. Do you have any ideas? I don't have any. I, I, I feel like a good one for him would be like the patron saint of patience, but I feel like that's a real thing. Yeah, no, not that. I don't, um... St. Monica is the patron saint of patience. Um, maybe like street brawls. Do we, he's the patron saint of street brawls, or he's the patron saint invoking against street brawls? Or if you get in a street brawl, you, uh, you pray to St. Symmachus so that you don't get stoned to death? You pray to him to forgive you for your street brawl. For your street brawls, okay. All right, fair enough. He can be the patron saint of that. And we'll get to his total score. It is such a beautiful rounded number. That never happens. What'd we do? No. Final score is a 30. Oh. It's just a 30. So nice and round. I love it. And now we have a big question to ask. Because is he popey enough? Is he pizzazzy enough for a papal bull? This is this is a big one. He hid in his room for so long that I have to say no. You don't want to give it to him? I mean, he was a good pope, and he managed to survive people literally trying to murder him through the most successful anti-papacy in history. No. This is a he's you're not you're not convinced, mm-hmm. hey? I'm trying to decide if I want to go to dice for him, because I, you know, this is one of those popes that comes back all the time. He is the one who set the standard that the pope cannot be judged by other bishops, and that's going to have huge consequences. This comes back to, like, the whole root of papal infallibility and papal immunity, and I think we have to go to dice, because I don't know if I'm willing to say no to him. That's fair. I'm going to grab the first d20 I can out of the bag. All right. If you have a jumping spider problem again, <laughs> I I actually have a dice now because of our crossover. Um. All right. I grabbed my big rainbow dice. Excellent. He <laughs> rolled an 18. Oh, yes! So, congratulations, Simicus! You are getting a papal bull! Yeah, I think, I think he deserves it. I'm, I'm happy about that. Alright, so that brings us to the end of our show where we say thank you to Totalis Rankium and Rex Factor. We are also going to thank Dr. Scoff and the Prof for recommending us. And Sad Girl Study Guides for recommending us again. Thank you so much. You've been really bolstering us up lately. That's awesome. Thank you all so very, very much for listening, as always. And we can say thank you. And goodbye. Bye. Bye.